Welcome to Hacked in the Dark, a podcast featuring Forge in the Dark games and their designers. I'm Justin. And I'm Ray. And we'll be your hosts for today's episode, Micro Settings and Gameable Lore. Today we sit down with our guest, Pam, aka The Dovetailer, to talk about her experience with Forge in the Dark games, Sina Una, all kinds of stuff. Welcome, Pam. Hi. Pam, uh, you are known as the Queen of Blades in some circles. Would you like to tell us about that title <laughs> and how you earned it? It was a joking comment from some friends of mm-hmm. mine in Manila because I became, for two years, the only person running a consistent Blades in the Dark game. So there was a huge demand for, for Blades in the Dark, but nobody was running it. So I'd have people coming from the other side of the city going like, hey, can I play Blades in the Dark under Pam? Is that all right? So I think that's how it started with the Manila <laughs> side. I don't know whether it's a thing in our tabletop circles, right? But right. for the local side, it was a bit of a joke. So I guess that's a Queen of Blades thing. Well, it's not a joke to us, Pam. <laughs> so welcome to the podcast. Pam, would you like to talk about yourself and what you do? I am a game designer and an editor, a writer. I also do a lot of community management for several spaces, and I do sensitivity and cultural studies uh, consultancy. Then another thing that I like to do is if there is some kind of, I guess, educational platform or a stream or a podcast that deals in topics that I consider to be my expertise, I am okay with doing work there preferably paid, but it depends on who's asking, I I guess. So I've been doing game design for a while. Interestingly enough, my main kind of design was very traditional using World of Darkness. But as we all know, you can't actually design a World of Darkness game without being hired by them or I think going on their storyteller's fault. So I never really thought about professional design until 2018, late 2018, where there is a local con called Session Zero. And my genius best friend, Rachel, said, I have all of these friends who say that they want to be game designers, but none of them produce a project. So now I'm going to give them a deadline. It is called a convention. Unless you design your game in time, you will not be able to participate in the convention. So all of us rush to produce games. That's why if people were on Twitter two years ago, I I need to ask that question because I don't want to assume everybody goes on Twitter all the time. So if, yeah. if you were on Twitter two years ago, you will see that there was this explosion of Filipino games mm-hmm. around 2019. Most of that was because of Session Zero. So I started my design work there. I consider Blaze in the Dark to be my big and great love, even though I am yet to release a actual Forged in the Dark or official Forged in the Dark project. Most of my work is Forge in the Dark adjacent. I have one that a lot of people insist is a Forge in the Dark thing, which is called One More Notch. It is Grishaverse inspired. So I basically took the Blades thing and I slapped Grishaverse on it and I changed all the names up and I made it very compatible between the two systems. I can't make a single dollar off of it, but I'm learning across the months that people found that game really, really cool, which is nice to hear. So I guess that's my my work in a nutshell. What is the Grishaverse? Mm. It is uh, <laughs> it's a series of books by an author named Leigh Bardugo. What's fascinating about her work is the first trilogy is basically Harry Potter in East Russia, except a lot darker with some Star Wars elements. That's like the best summary I could give you for the first trilogy. But what makes it Blades adjacent 
And this is something that I learned from a friend of mine who GM'd a Grishaverse campaign through Blades in the Dark. The second set of books is in a city that is not too different from Duskfall. And it is about a group of young scoundrels doing the biggest heist of their life. So it's an excellent two-book series. And it's very queer-friendly. It also talks a lot about exploitation, about slavery, about what the true meaning of crime is. And what's great about the books is if you buy them, you're actually supporting the author's advocacy where she donates some of the proceedings to busting child labor and exploitation and slavery all around Mm. the world. So it was literally her work about that with characters who were traumatized by that. And this is her making a love note to the rest of the world going, we could change this if you just support me and other advocacies. So that's that's where the design space of One More Notch happened. So I ended up with a lot of fans who were saying, I didn't realize that you could make the connection. So you have a whole bunch of fans who would never play tabletop, or you have a whole bunch of Blades people who had never read Grishaverse, and then they just ended up finding my game and going, I'm going to do the other thing that I don't know. And then they'd come back to me going, whoa, this is amazing. And I'm like, well, thank you. I can't take full credit for it, but thank you for playing my hack, which I make no money <laughs> off of. You know, So that's the long and short of it. Mm-hmm. I told Pam before the call, I, I'm a huge fan of Pam's work. And every time she's on a panel, I just love to hear her talk about game design and the Southeast Asian Filipino RPG scene is really fascinating. Could you just speak a little bit more about it? Like how big is Blades in the Dark and indie games compared to the scene as a whole? And yeah, I'm just curious to learn more. I can only speak in broad strokes, of course, for the rest of the region. And in particular, I can only speak in broad strokes about Malaysia and Indonesia and a bit about Singapore. Because unfortunately, while we call ourselves RPGC, we, by nature of what we did, which was simply a hashtag with a whole bunch of very loud hype beasts constantly talking about it, we don't actually go like, hey, we totally represent the rest of the country because we're expecting people to see the hashtag and have them come into it. Now, why we made that this very open world or open gate kind of policy was because we noticed that a lot of designers, for better or for worse, huddle in their own circles and go via referral rather than keep the gate open. So we have no actual rules. We have no gods and we have no masters. It's just if you're Southeast Asian and you're from the region or you're Southeast Asian and you're living elsewhere, you are welcome to use the hashtag. The only time that many of us will speak out is if we find that your content or your actions in the communities that you're in are problematic. That's the only time we will collectively disavow you. So in terms of design, I think that the world beyond RPGC is wondering like, whoa, all of you guys must be into design. This is amazing. But actually, most of our scenes are very D&D facing with some Call of Thulu and a bit of World of Darkness and maybe occasionally Pathfinder. So we are the strange minority in our own local spheres, which makes us feel really good that international folks are going, you guys have great designs. You guys are so into indie games. That's because we're the weird ones. That's that's the, the strange secret of, of Southeast Asia. <laughs> I don't think any scene, as far as I know, and, and I've heard a bit about Thailand and a bit about Vietnam, none of them really go into design outside of D&D. 
And I know that the Philippines, for example, you have a lot of Filipino writers that you wouldn't even know about. They're all on the DMs Guild. None of them are designing locally for other games. There is one good person who's doing World of Darkness. And once again, I am literally the only person doing Blades in the Dark, Fortune in the Dark stuff in, in Manila. I know that, again, there are a lot of people who do adjacent forged work, but they don't, they haven't really locked down a hack. Mm-hmm. I was talking to somebody from Singapore about doing, about their game becoming a hack, but he later changed his mind and decided to go kind of OSR instead. So I guess that's the, that's kind of how things are here. You mentioned that indie gaming is kind of restricted in the Philippines and elsewhere in Asia that you know of. What do you think the barriers are there? Is it, you know, I know the Philippines doesn't have as much of a language barrier as some of the other countries. Is that why we're seeing more Philippine creators getting recognized in like the American indie scene or the European indie scene right now just because of that the lack of those barriers? Or do you think there's some other reason? I think a lot of it for me, especially, is a friend of mine named Bahar got extremely lucky. And this is actually where me and Justin met at BBC. Yeah. We were both funded to go to a American convention. Prior to us being funded to go to that convention and being visible to not just people who play RPGs, but people who publish RPGs, many people thought there was no market for TRPGs in the Philippines or that if ever there was, it'd end at D&D and there you go. So I think the biggest barrier is really visibility. And Mm -hmm. visibility is difficult to maintain if you are not within the locale of the main producers of TRPGs. I've been extremely lucky, but my friends have also told me that I need to remind myself that my luck took me this far, a 1 to 100. My luck took me about 30 to 40%. The rest of it was very, very hard, constant work, which was Mm -hmm. part of why I'm always open to interviews. So thank you for having me here again. It's also part of why I throw myself into conventions, even if I don't know anybody, because I at least have the privilege to be able to do that. Many of the designers in the Philippine sphere all have full-time jobs or they are very young. So you've got the range of very tired corporate workers who don't really have the time to focus on anything but their occasional hobby hobbyist game, quote-unquote. Then you have people who are still doing their studies. And in this time of pandemic, that makes everything very difficult. Mm-hmm. On my end, I am only doing game design and I have enough of a security blanket to focus on that. Because RPGC, or at least the initial creators of the hashtag, myself kind of included, we all agreed that this community space or the, this community space of spaces will only thrive if we support each other. The best way to support each other is to highlight the ones who are not as visible as the rest of us. Since I'm extremely visible and I'm getting the interviews, I'm getting the attention, and I have more or less consistent income through commissions, it has become my quote-unquote job to make sure that people who don't have as much as me get seen. So it's really that barrier, visibility, and then the inability to be consistent, not because of a lack of creativity, Mm -hmm. but simply a lack of time, energy, and resources. Well, you definitely don't suffer from a lack of creativity because you have a lot of game projects that we could talk about today. I wonder if you could just briefly tell us, what are you working on now that's Forge in the Dark adjacent? Well, once I dig myself out of NDA land, I plan on returning to my Dagger Isle supplement. Mm -hmm. It is becoming an increasingly ambitious project. Initially, I thought that it would simply be a land setting to kind of go, 
hey, Dagger Isles exists. Nobody talks about it, but it's here. Now it's going to become its own setting with its own factions, its own cities, its own playbooks, and its own crew. It might have two crews, in fact, and many of them will be about rebellion and about colonialism and all of that stuff. So it'll be much like Iruvia's resetting. Then my forged adjacent stuff, I do have an up and coming Kickstarter uh, called Our Shores. I was very generously supported by a friend in the States. I think some people are familiar with Liam from Sandy Pug Games. Me and my partner have Navithem's End. What is fascinating about Navithem's End is that we market it as a PTBA game, and yet our playbooks use Forge in the Dark facing style skills. So when I designed all of the skills, and the, the playbooks have seven different designations, then under each of the designations, you have 10 skills. In all of those cases, when I was designing the skills, I thought to myself, the basic principle of a special ability in any Forge in the Dark game is that it is a hack of the system. So that's what I did. 70 hacks across the playbooks. Then Sin and I decided to go for our mage playbooks to do much the same thing. 10 skills per mage playbook that hack the system. So it's very forged. We also use downtime. Uh, so we have the little action economy that Blades in the Dark popularized. Then, of course, we use clocks and we might throw in a couple of other things. So that's my big forged adjacent project. If people visit my itch, they will see my embarrassing first attempt at doing Forge in the Dark <laughs> anything. It's called Waking the Dead. It is three US dollars only. So if you want to check it out, feel free. I am deeply ashamed by it, but I know that I had some very good ideas. I will be mutating that system soon. Hopefully soon anyway. So what I did there was it's a D10 thing. And it has 25 actions. Yes, you can get mad at me now for making 25 <laughs> actions. And Wild C has like 30. <laughs> so I, I, I don't know what I was thinking. I just thought it would be really, really cute. And a couple of my friends were like, are you okay, Pam? And it took the, are you okay, Pam, intervention for me to realize. So Waking the Dead got, I guess, shunted in that sense. And I ended up getting very busy with commissions. So... What might happen for Waking the Dead, though, is I will take the main Forge system. I will still put it in the under a D10, but it'll become Roll Under instead of the traditional Build the Dice Pool. And it will also have a move spread that is a lot like PTBA. So that's the vague plan. I have a <laughs> very vague plan. The other last game is 7,107 Iscariots. I am still very lost on what I'm going to do there, but I recently had a playtest session with some wonderful folks from IDGN or IGBN. And they told me, Pam, just do the thing. So I may lean very hard into Iron Sworn style of doing PTBA meets Forge in the Dark. Ooh. Yeah, and turn my devil may cry sort of you're all sacred beasts of God. You don't know what you're doing and you are caught between heaven and hell, damnation and vainglory in order to do the thing. So the Forge and Dark element there might be in how we do factions, how we do community, how position and effect matters, except position and effect will be converted into two bars. Two bars for players and one bar for a GM. So you're basically fighting each other with your dice pools. So that's, those are the plans. Pam, it sounds like you've been down the Forge in the Dark rabbit hole. And I know <laughs> Justin and I both have been down that rabbit hole as well. Mm -hmm. Justin has rewritten 
moth light several times and i've rewritten multiple hacks several several times um can you speak a little bit to the difficulty in hacking blades in the dark as well as its allure in in hacking it and sort of why why we keep doing and tackling this crazy beast of a system i think for me how i look at blades in general blades are forged is it is not a game it's a toolbox and it is a very big toolbox in fact, maybe toolbox isn't the right metaphor. It's a tool shed, a warehouse of very shiny things that attract different people. Because what it tried to do as a system, at least for the time, was unique. It married a lot of board game elements together with a strong narrative front. And it tried to take pieces of Powered by the Apocalypse and put it under microscopic focus. Because one of the main points of difficulty for PTBA design is it's a great narrative-first play-to-find-out system. But also, if you do not have a strong vision for your PTBA game, it will collapse no matter how nice your moves are, no matter how great or how streamlined you make it. It'll fall apart simply because it's not interesting enough. Forge in the Dark has a lot of catches. So I would say critically, it's easier to do a Forge in the Dark game if you just straight up took the SRD, slapped an idea on it, changed some things around, and did the thing. But I'll borrow some fighting game community terms and say that it is easy to learn, hard to master. <laughs> That's where Forge gets super tricky. And then I think designers, again, because Toolbox here in the candy store, all like, whoa, cool things. Everyone's going to focus on something different. Everyone's going to have angst about that one or two things that they want to improve. And then they're going to make a game out of it. That's where people just dive very deep into the rabbit hole. Like with me and Waking the Dead and the 25 actions. I thought that was great because I like the action economy. But these days, I'm actually more into the position and effect. Because position and effect can be super vague. Yet, if you think about it in terms of a board game, or if, even if you think about it in terms of a video game, it's that moment where all your characters are running around dealing with the antagonists and then you pause while everybody's in slow motion on your screen and you're picking options. If I do this, what happens? If I go here, where do I end up? How will the battlefield change? So it's the tabletop version of turn-based RPGs or action-based RPGs with that really weird <laughs> blend, like Final Fantasy VII. That was Dragon the, Age. Dragon Age, right? You program your stuff. Yeah. FF12, you program everything. And you know exactly how things go. So if you're, again, a new person to it, it's so easy. You could just go, okay, that's how I figure it out. But if you're somebody who's super intense into that, you could go wild. And that, on a tabletop level, is exciting to me. It's not exciting to everyone else, and that's fine. But I think a lot of Forge of the Dark people are not maximizing position and effect yet, mm -hmm. which is, it's not a problem. Like Everything I say, it's all my opinion only. I don't want to like generalize statements because I hate that stuff. But for me, it's a tool that I find is extremely underutilized. And it may also be because it wasn't written very clearly. So, so there are still some people who don't really understand how scale works. Mm -hmm. They're not sure like what kind of position you're supposed to be at. So it went very freewheelie anarchy. But because of that, I think that the initial SRD was not able to give enough guidance for designers on how they can use it. The other thing that I'd like to play with is 
how harm and trauma can actually become a safety tool if you use it correctly. Because a lot of people say that Fortune in the Dark initially is about quick burnout because the focus is on the crew rather than the character. So the point is, you get stressed, you wash out, you make another character because the crew is the living creature that you are dealing with. Mm-hmm. What I've noticed, though, is that runs contrary to how a lot of my players like Blades. They love their individual characters. They didn't want to let any of them go. So the crew became a cute way for them to get together. But they fell in love so much with their PCs and what they could do around the world that them getting hurt became disheartening. So the safety tool that I came up with was I just hacked the system and said, okay, it's completely optional. If you go past the stress thing, it's not going to automatically equal trauma. We'll talk it out and see how we can change that. And I do remember, I forgot what page. I had the page handy because I had to pick a lot of fights with some fortunate art people about this before. But I had the page number handy where Harper himself says that you can theoretically remove trauma by making it a long-term project. So that's, that's something that a lot of people were saying, no, it doesn't exist. And I literally just whip my book out and go, here, read it. Yeah. The man himself said it. I'm correct. I'm going to walk away from this conversation before I punch you. So that, that's another design thing that I think could be utilized. There are a lot of elements like that in the book where you don't remember them until you think you invented it. And then <laughs> you look in the book and it's there. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. If people want to hear more about a lot of what we've just been talking about, I'd actually really recommend the lovely Forge in the Dark Designs panel that Pam and I and a number of guests of this podcast have been on, which is uh, if you Google it, you should be able to find it in the Googles. It's a really good one hour panel covering kind of like the joy of Forge in the Dark Design on kind of a general level and encouraging people to tackle it. I had a lot of fun there. That was a great panel, honestly. That was a really good one. And, you know, one of the things I I think I like to think about this podcast and the Discord and panels like that is I really want more people to get involved in it. Just like, you know, PBTA has become a fan favorite game to hack over the years. I would love to see Forged be that as well. So we've gone a little bit into your background and experience and and some of your thoughts on Forged Dark as a game. But we're going to actually talk about something a little more general to design today, which is micro settings and gameable lore. Pam, you you mentioned this is something you would like to talk about. Would you like to explain what you meant by micro settings and gameable lore? Well, first off, one of the things that I wanted to put forward is the fact that everybody talks about those two terms, that they know what it means, but there's no singular definition for micro settings or gameable lore. Mm -hmm. So that was part of the reason why I like to put my foot forward and discuss it, because it's less me establishing myself as a centered authority, which is a personal peeve of mine, and more me saying, okay, this is a term that has an ideology behind it. As with all ideologies, there are many shades, there are many voices. So this is my voice explaining what micro-settings and gameable lore means, so that you as an individual can say, I agree, or I disagree, this is why. So that way we can create a conversation rather than somebody going like, I'm Highlander. There can be only one. So that's why I, that's again the long and short of why I, I do the thing. So micro settings are for me a micro focus on a particular event, person, detail, location within a much wider world. 
So it's that moment where you as player go, hey, we're walking into a town. Look at those guards. And rather than just swing your eyes away and do your epic hero thing, you think back to the guard and go, where does he sleep at night? What are his hobbies? What level would he be at if he was actually a PC? Does he care about what's happening? When I blow up the city later for my great epic hero thing, what's going to happen to him? That's a micro-setting moment. It's also, if I'm going to bring it back to Blaze in the Dark, when you go to the book and you look at that whole section about food, that's also delving into mm-hmm. micro-settings. Did you need it for your game? No. But now that you have it and you incorporated it, does it make the game better? Yes. So a micro setting are fine details that flesh things out that are not occupied with a very, very large hole of whatever overarching plot or story you have that may or may not deal with the players themselves, but affects their circumstances or their context nonetheless. On the other hand, gameable lore, that's a tricky one. I wrote an entire Twitter thread on that one because uh, <laughs> it was my big frustration as a designer. I walked in and I'd have a lot of OSR friends of mine saying, hmm, gameable lore. And I'd just be here going like, what does that mean? And I'd get like 15 different answers. So eventually mm-hmm. I got frustrated and said, hey, Twitter, give me your definitions on gameable lore. I will compile them. So my findings about gameable lore is... The very vague, quote-unquote, anything that might be useful to the players to flesh out the story and to play with. That is the very vague umbrella of gameable lore. It has to be something useful to both players and to GMs. It has to be something that drives the plot forward. And technically, it should not exist until a player touches it. So instinctively, we all kind of know what gameable lore is, apparently. We've just never put like words to it. So that's a gameable lore thing in a nutshell. How that goes back to Blades in the Dark, just look at your factions. Mm-hmm. All it has are very simple names, some very baseline descriptions, some simple motivations, and some clocks. Every single GM I know interprets all of those differently. Right down to the gender from the gang of the gang, right down to erasing some factions completely, to shifting their tiers, to delving into what did they mean when they said that they wear this what do you mean when they say that they're dauntless every single piece of that is gameable or and none of that exists until you tap it so it's just there for you to consider but it is not necessary it runs very counter to the idea that all tabletop rpgs must have a canon that both gms and players have to understand now i'm not going to rock anybody for liking that I know some people absolutely love it when you have hundreds upon hundreds of pages to read and in a world to immerse yourself in. That's cool. As a novel, as a former novel writer and somebody who used to read books, I used to take books like, like drugs, basically, when it comes to, to fiction and fantasy. If that's your thing, cool. Some people get so much more inspired rather than seeing a faction and going like, what am I supposed to do with this, right? But gameable lore is the diametric opposition to that, for better or for worse. So it's really a matter of design preferences and player preferences and style versus, uh, I guess that that'd be it. So that's gameable lore and micro settings. Yeah, that's fascinating. There was actually a recent conversation on the 
Discord today, I think, uh, Eli, Eli Kurtz brought up the term lore and anti-lore. And mm -hmm. that was the first time I heard those terms as well. And after hearing his explanation and sort of the definitions that you just presented, I feel like it's kind of the same kind of concept or, or, or that link concept for me. When I first tackled like Blaze in the Dark games, trying to taxonomize an entire universe broke my brain basically <laughs> like i just i just i couldn't function afterwards and i like for the longest time it was figuring that out and and trying to find the best way possible to do that and yeah just those terms i think really help put a grounding to that conversation there's no question there i'm sorry i just wanted to talk i guess <laughs> it's fine eli is familiar with it because if i remember correctly we both identify with sword dream and yeah. osr is extremely obsessed with anti-lore anti-canon because again the idea is yeah it's not useful to your players why is this here why do i need to read this random short story that somebody got paid to write for 15 pages how is this useful to me that's where the frustration started with gameable lore, anti-canon, anti-lore. Of course, for me, weirdly, on a personal note, this whole gameable lore thing is both diametrically opposed to who I am as a writer and also very, very good for me as a designer. Because I used to, I write voluminous things. I make entire playlists. That's another fun hobby I have. If you go to my Spotify, I have hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of playlists of characters that you will never recognize, but they mean so much to me. And if you actually play some of my games, people call it the, the Pamu cinematic universe because the NPCs and factions <laughs> all repeat. They're all there. I've even yeah. managed to slip some of them into my NDA thing. So if you've played with me at least two sessions and you're familiar with that one guy, you will end up seeing in a publication two years two years down the line from here that yes, I made it an NPC. So I've created the PCU with with that thing. So it, it's a it's a strange space to be in. But also for me anyway, what point is there to writing a game if somebody cannot pick it up and play it in a fashion that makes it accessible or read it because we have to acknowledge that some of our TRPG hobbyists can read games and they'll still be able to play it in their heads. It is still, in a way, play, despite them not having a group. It's funny, Ray. I actually see you as someone who kind of drools <laughs> over gameable lore in the form of uh, random tables. Yes. I was going to mention that too, <laughs> Justin. <laughs> would, you, would you like to tell me about some of your favorite aspects of uh, random tables, Ray? I think it drives to what Pam said about how different players interpret different things. And I really think of it in terms of like seeds. If you can give players and GMs seeds and they can go and run with it, that's that's so powerful. What rather kind of drives to the whole prescriptive versus descriptive thing as well. And all of these like things we think about when we talk about RPGs, you know, constraints, possibilities, blah, 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 blah. Like because tables are easy to come up with. If you just say, I need to come up with six of something it, it it takes a lot of the cognitive load because you're just constraining yourself to coming up with a list of things rather than saying oh my gosh i have to think of every single little detail of this faction and what they eat and where where whatever <laughs> if i if it's just like six story hooks okay i can come up with six of those right so i think it's an easy shorthand for designers to stop themselves from being too carried away and to get to the testing phase rather than getting stuck in the writing phase yeah, that's, that is so totally a thing. I've noticed that a lot of designers tend to assume that tabletop RPG design is like novel writing. It is absolutely not. 
So because they're stuck in the paradigm of believing that tabletop design is like novel writing, because they have so many moving parts all in their brain, they end up not writing anything at all because they're pressured into figuring out how to articulate it, how to word it, and how to make it happen. I guess because, again, this is not rocking anybody, our very first big game was Dungeons & Dragons. It is built in a particular way. That is why it's called a traditional game. And then Dungeons & Dragons and its, its cohorts, I guess, and then the people who wrote anti away from Dungeons & Dragons under the trad umbrella created a particular mentality towards design. But gaming can be so much more than that, and honestly, both sides should continue to exist. That's where I'm at. I might not play Dungeons & Dragons excessively, but that game was my gateway. So I deeply respect people who design in that space. I am learning how to design for Dungeons & Dragons because one thing that I believe as a designer is, and again, this doesn't work for everyone, it just works for me. In order to design in the space, you must read and learn to design as many things as possible, even if you don't quote-unquote like them. Now, Dungeons & Dragons is so different from my usual design that I looked at it and I said, okay, I need to learn how to design for it so they can understand it. And there can be many contributions to your own design repertoire if you actually study how D&D does the thing. Because you can learn critically from it, you can learn exactly what you don't like from it, because many people like to shit on D&D, basically. But when you ask them what's wrong with it, they go like, uh, I don't know, Wizards is evil, right? And I'm like, I'm not satisfied with that answer as a teacher. That's not even a C-plus answer to me. That's like a, I'll pass you if I feel sorry for you answer. So at least if you go into a game that you were told was quote-unquote bad, and you look at it yourself, and you try to design for it, even in a small fashion, you will learn so much more. Now, I acknowledge that a lot of people do not have the time to do that. So if you do not have the time or the energy, don't. Because personally, I say this even as I acknowledge that I still have a priority reading list. I'm not going to read everything. I will simply read things that have touchstones or points of tension, and I will explore that. You have to read smartly, not the whole thing. Yeah. One thing I will say for D&D is it kind of has it all in terms of lore. It has both a ton of gameable lore in the t in the sense of like millions of random tables and you know interchangeable parts uh, that you can use in various ways and it has novels worth of lore that <laughs> some people really love even if they never read it all they just love that it's there which is an interesting thing i don't know that i am the person to produce that kind of lore personally or at least when i do i tend to like boil it down to gameable lore yeah. <laughs> eventually but I do, I do envy that more novel-esque kind of design just from the sense of sometimes there are players that that's what gets them going, is just imagining that there's a whole world that's already established and that when they ask a question about that world, there is an immediate answer to whatever question they have. So how do we approach that with a game like Blades has plenty of lore, but Looking through the book, most of that lore is presented in like paragraph long statements. We're not getting a whole, you know, well, I guess we do have a novel <laughs> in the Blades <laughs> universe now. But in the book, like you said, like, I think the factions are probably the most detailed thing and they are just a couple paragraphs long. So how do we approach that feeling of, oh, we're in a rich world that has a specific feel, but by using this micro setting technique and by, by using game of the lore? For me, the space I'm always in with designing for Forge in the Dark and also GMing for it, actually, is you let your players run around in 
Duskfall or your equivalent of Duskfall. So I'll go to one more notch because here's a fun fact about the so-called Queen of Blades. She's never really run long campaigns in actual Blade setting. It's all one more notch because that seems to be the more popular one among my peers. So when I do one more notch stuff, the design work and the GM work starts from session zero. Get a very good idea of what your players are into. Build a palette of exactly what they want to see in this wild, dishonored-like dark city. And from there, see who they pick as their NPCs, their friends and their rivals. Determine which factions mean something to them. And frankly speaking, disregard the rest. Because one way or another, they're either going to come up or they don't, and that's fine. One of the touchstones that I'm most proud about when it comes to One More Notch is how I made Bazo Baz. Again, I can't take full credit for this. This is from my GM who first introduced me to Blades of the Dark, which later became my addiction for years. His version of Bazo Baz is somebody who is more like an antisocial evil robot. He only puts on the human mask when it suits him. So how my GM used to play Bazo Baz was he'd have a very, very straight dead face and my GM would deliberately pause before Bazo said anything. So he'd pause, develop a caricature of an expression, and then very in a very exaggerated fashion, respond to you. Then the first mission that you go under for Eric's Bazo Baz is whiskey stuff, because if you'll remember, the faction says that he is a whiskey lover, so he builds his entire thing around whiskey. Mm-hmm. So when I made Bazo Baz, I tried to emulate that. The idea that this is somebody who was born basically without emotion. Emotion is only used to get his way. So he became one of the points of central conflict because the interesting thing about my Bazo Baz is he can go either way. If you influence him enough to be human, you could actually make him a good person or at least an amalgam or a shade of that. If you ignore him and let him continue to do his wild things in Northhook, the setting of One More Notch, he will later become one of the worst antagonists you will meet. But also, if you have nothing to do with the Lamplacks, you'll just occasionally hear news of like, yeah, the Lamplacks strung up more people again, kind of like, whoa, we're not going there. So it, it all changes depending on your party. That's how I approach it as a designer. What fascinates your players? Because this is about them and also about your fun. If nobody's having fun, you might want to step back and figure out what they're really looking for in terms of their lore. And another thing that would be good to focus on is rather than go quote-unquote board game style with playing or running Blades, make sure that you have sessions totally devoted to free play so that they could literally run around in the world like this is an MMORPG, they can wrestle up an NPC, they can play out them going through their vice and an interesting thing happens. The free play element that you can put into Blades makes it a lot more fascinating for players. It also helps you step up your game as a GM because that's when you can start inserting the little fine, fun details to make the world come alive. You are working on a Dagger Isles project right now. I'm curious in relation to micro setting. I don't know how much you have written. Can do you have some examples you can give us of how you provide micro setting to this this you know world that we're familiar with in Blades? But that adds something new. The design space I'm in for doing Dagger Isles is, as much as I deeply respect John Harper and we've had extremely positive interactions, I mm-hmm. do consider him to be a high-value industry contact and I would love to talk with him more. I noticed that there was a great lack in showing 
anybody who is not white. I understand that that is not a act of bad intent. It's simply writing from what you know. Right. So when I looked at Dagger Isles and I realized that even on the book, Dagger Isles has no capital, no known landmark, no nothing. I got a little frustrated and said, you know what? Why don't I just make that the Philippines? So, <laughs> and I, I asked around discords whether that was okay with people. My questioning was more, so when you play Blades of the Dark, how do you identify Dagger Isles? Is it Black? Is it Hispanic? Is it Southeast Asian? Is it East Asian? What is it for you? And solidly, I got two answers. It's either Southeast Asia or you're Black. So I am not a Black person. I would never write from anything to do with Black history. All I'm going to do is uplift my Black friends. But I can write from a Southeast Asian perspective. So all of my micro setting beats will be designed around what if Dagger Isles except a Philippines that was never colonized. So one micro setting thing I will do is I'm going to try to tie things back to how the immortal emperor of the setting believes or says that Dagger Isles is conquered. But when you get there, you're going to realize that most of the foreigners are just in like one tiny city because the islands themselves hate whoever, like they literally hate whoever comes into the hood. All of the settlements and cities in the Dagger Isle supplement will be built around spirit trees because the entire island may or may not be a living creature. You are sitting in its grave. So it might resurrect depending on how you play. And it's just this wild <laughs> it's just this wild mangrove. So everything is poison except for the settlements around a spirit tree, which generates an energy that pushes back all of the strange ghosts. So if you want to play as a foreigner, sure, you, you're totally welcome to do that and bring whatever you think. However, it will become a lot more interesting if you're playing a Dagger Isles native with the many with the many factions arguing. So this time the factions will not really be factions. They're going to be tied to cities and mm. they will have their own conflict. So if you're in the city for foreigners, for example, you will likely be revolutionaries trying to toss the white people out. If you're playing though from the far flung regions of the Dagger Isles, you might just be arguing with your cousin from the other city and you've turned it into a blood feud. So those are the, the different things that I'm doing for Dagger Isles. I'm not sure whether that fully answered the question, but that was more of a, here's what I'm doing. I hope that it fits. So, Pam, I want to circle back a little bit to what you just talked about, but also earlier in our conversation, when we were talking about Southeast RPG and Filipino designers in particular, there was a very strong, not even an undercurrent, just a current of a lot of these Filipino RPGs exploring not only colonialism, but Filipino culture as a whole. But by the same token, Filipino designers, they're recently getting very popular or kind of hot in the design space because we share a Franco lingua and because we all speak English. And so there's, it seems to me that there's an interesting dichotomy between the colonial language being now what's being able to allow us to explore different cultures and and go deep on that. So can you speak a little bit to that and sort of that dynamic and, and how you feel about it? Okay, the fun thing with English is that it might be the only language that will unify, quote unquote, unify, I say that with great hesitation, 
all of the different demographics in the Philippines. We have 7,107 islands. And in one island alone, you could get maybe 15 different ethnic groups. And in those 15 different ethnic groups, they will have one quote-unquote language, but actually it's several languages. So when we say Filipino, my first question to anybody who tries to do the purity test is, what do you mean? Because uh, my partner and I, for example, they come from the Visayas region. I come from Luzon. And those two are already a difference in large island regions. Sin speaks a very different language from me by Tagalog, not even counting English. And my Tagalog also comes from a specific province. And not just a specific province, a specific city that speaks this kind of Tagalog versus if you go to, I guess, next door, their Tagalog will be very different. So English is the, the neutralizer, the common ground that many different people could use to speak in. And not a lot of people like to think about the colonial implications of that and the fact that English and also the language I mentioned, Tagalog, tend to be equated with Philippines. But that is both a colonial action and also the action of very large interest groups here based in the capital, Manila. We have a running joke called Imperial Manila, where Manila likes to think it represents the Philippines. But if you just go again next door to another place, that's a lot more quote-unquote Filipino than Manila will ever be because Manila is very white thinking. And unfortunately, many people in the city take after all of the wrong aspects of Spain, America, China, Japan, and everybody else who came into our town and, and stayed a while. So oh, another thing I must mention is English is 100% couched in privilege here. You will not learn English unless you've had the privilege of actually finishing school. That's how bad things can get on the, on the economic level of the Philippines. So that's also why tabletop is restricted to middle class to upper class folks because they are the only people who can afford the book and not just afford the book understand it so the design space is a strange space because for many of us designing philippine settings is a deep deep point of anxiety how do we do this right how do we say who we are how can we reclaim what was lost due to by accident of our birth, we are 300 years after the Spanish left and so many generations after America walked out on us. How do we deal with all of that? So you'll notice that some designers avoid it and that's okay because how can you tell somebody, hey, we want you to confront your colonial history and be smart about it? You can't do that. That's, that's not right. Decolonization isn't just in work. It's also decolonizing your body, your emotions, and your thoughts. And when we say decolonization, that is an extremely traumatic and personal journey. You will meet a lot of people in the design space that will insist that they know what decolonization is. But the reason why if you Google search, you won't find any one answer is because there really isn't one answer. And such as it is, every colonial experience across the world is different. The Philippine story is unique. We cannot match any of our fellow peers who were also colonized by Spain and let's say South America. So... For me, I have the tools at present to start exploring Philippine design. But if you track my design history, after One More Notch, I didn't touch the Philippines in any of my designs for, I think, three games. 
mm-hmm. I only had one thing where it was Manila, and it's not really the colonial design. That was just me doing a funny taxi game in Manila. So it was Filipino, but it wasn't the colonial design. Then Dagger Isles is going to be a, a deep point of difficulty for me, precisely because I will be talking about colonial experiences. And I think, in a way, you can conclude that a lot of Filipino designers are doing pre-colonial Philippines, like the islands of Simuna, because it's, quote-unquote, easier. You're talking about the Philippines that was not violated by colonization. You can do whatever you want. You can pick up the fragmented pieces of trivia and history and spin a beautiful story out of it. That's why you won't really see a lot of designers doing in colonial period design or post-colonial period design. For me personally, I want to learn how to do that. Because uh, another fun fact about me, I come from Taal, Batangas. That's a province in Luzon. And Taal City was the seat of the Katipunan Revolution. Those are the people who overthrew Spain. I have an ancestor who was tied to a woman who would literally hide guns under her petticoats to bring to the revolutionaries. So the Katipunan Revolution for me is loud and proud. And on the other side of the family of my mother, my grandfather was a war veteran. Those are periods that do not have the words to talk about those experiences. Because such as it is with trauma, right? Trauma and, uh, and great events like the pandemic. You're left without words. You do not know how to articulate your experience. You only feel the pain or you feel the anger or you feel the relief of it passing. So design work then in some ways for decolonization can be you are putting the words to the experience. You are giving people a voice. You are speaking for yourself. You are changing definitions. So it, it's a lot when you talk to any Filipino designer. You, and likely you'll get the initial thing of, I don't really know what to do because it's so big. What if it's not genuine? Or you'll get me where I can talk five episodes about decolonization because I've already thought about it. And I've had the, the brain space and I haven't had such violent opposition to discussing decolonization and how to be Filipino. It's also, again, a point of angst for me. Mm-hmm. I come from Taal. And I'm based in Manila, but for eight and a half years of my life, I was Canadian. So imagine being a girl at, or a girl or even just a kid at 10 years old, you go to this fascinating new country of your birth and you think that everybody's going to love you, but you're constantly made to feel like you're not Filipino enough. That no matter what you do, whether you learn the language or you don't learn the language, whether you learn the culture or you don't, you're never going to be Filipino enough because you didn't grow up here. So for me, a lot of my design is also answering the question of, am I Filipino enough with a resounding yes? And if people don't believe me, too bad. If you do believe me, buy my games. (laughs) That's how I design stuff. Thank you, Pam. That's a really good perspective to have. To ease us back into game material Mm -hmm. just a little bit, I'm going to kind of riff on that lightly and ask, in this Staker's Isle setting, are you doing something different with the heritage aspect of a character? I know that it, it strikes me that in a game like Blades, some of that material, your heritage, your playbook, your crew type, is almost akin to gameable lore in that it is not like a hard limit on what you can do in the game. It just kind of provides you with something to riff off of and, and flavor your game with. Are, are you doing something with elements like that 
in Dagger Isles that might surprise people? I'm not sure about surprise, but mm-hmm. I will definitely go into the idea that your heritage is a mix of two things. Your bloodline as family, because mm-hmm. family is a very interesting concept for Filipinos, and also your location. So that becomes your heritage, where you are from and who you are related to, be it by blood or adoption. And I want to have really funny questions like, so what does your ethnic group eat? And (laughs) what do you guys eat? How do you do your recreation? And how do you love each other? Because an interesting aspect of Filipino pre-colonial stuff is... By our very pronouns, the word sha, uh, S-I-Y-A, is gender neutral. So that's a Mm -hmm. weird struggle that some Filipinos have when they deal with queer issues because for us, pronouns should be a natural thing. If you identify as they, them, well, we're all they, thems. So when you say sha, you're not actually sure whether they're she she or he, whether you're reading pre-colonial stuff. So... Of course, me being a queer woman, I would like to explore that. And another interesting aspect of that will be, which spirit are you married to? (laughs) Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, I learned that pre-colonial Philippine datus, the local leaders, would sometimes claim that they married a mountain, uh, a diwata or a spirit, for religious power. Because religious and spiritual power are one and the same with political power. So if you marry a spirit... That means that you are stronger than your peers who merely have mortal spouses. So it is common for a Datu to have one mortal spouse and one spirit spouse. Now, in the real world, we don't know whether that those things exist. Some of us believe in it. That's cool. Other people think that is, there's no such thing. But in a game like Blades of the Dark, where you literally do have ghosts and spirits, that could be some fun times, yeah. right? <laughs> you're, you're marrying a spirit of the land. And what does that do for you in terms of a character? Not just narratively, but mechanically. What will that Diwata provide for you? How will that Diwata become a possible devil's bargain? So I'll be exploring things like that. That really got me inspired, actually. <laughs> Oddly enough, I think I actually have married someone to a spirit in a game of Blades in the Dark, but not nearly to that degree. It sounds really beautiful. We're, we're nearing the end of our interview. And so we're going to wind down a little bit. Thank you, Pam, for joining us today and for all your insights into micro settings and game lore. If our listeners want to learn more about you and your games, where can they go? You can likely check out my itch account. That is the dovetailer, one word, dot itch, dot io. I do have a card, but it might be better to just go to my itch because everything is, is linked there. So that's kind of the wrap on me. You can also follow me on Twitter. Twitter is both my self-promotional platform and also where i pour a lot of my thoughts because frankly speaking i'm too lazy to blog i will fix that one day but it won't be anytime soon so if you want to follow me there and figure out what is pamela thinking what does she think of this because she's full of feelings just follow my twitter you, you see it all there it's the dovetailer so capital t for v capital d for dovetailer dovetailer being one word thank you pam and i think people will be happy uh whenever they go to that page and see all the awesome stuff you already have available and follow Pam, too, because as you can see, Pam's going to have a lot of cool games for you in the near future. <laughs> I'm really curious about this, the secret one uh, and that guy that apparently some people know about. <laughs> well, 
This has been a great episode of Hacked in the Dark, a podcast featuring Forge in the Dark games and their designers. Again, I'm Justin. And I'm Ray. Ray, in this post-episode moment, do you have anything that you would like to pitch or to, to plug? I would just like to say that Pam always seems to have the right words. And again, I've said it multiple times, but every time I listen to her, I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, my fandom grows and grows and grows. It's just, I love, love hearing her talk about RPGs and design. It's unfortunate that no one listening can hear what you just said because they're all, they've all been hypnotized by Pam's uh, previous several speeches and they're just kind of in awe at this moment. So uh, maybe when they wake up, they'll re-listen and, and hear what it is you had to say. I guess I'm in a similar plight. Um, I'm actually going to take this moment today not to plug my own stuff, but I'm reminded of by some of what we were talking about of a project I worked on with one Fernando of the Blades and Dark Discord and elsewhere. You can find his stuff at nandoffg.itch.io. We did a Scovland playbook, an unofficial Scovland setting oh, yeah. uh, guide and yeah. playbooks. That was really fun to work on. It was Fernando's idea, and I came in to help him with layout and editing on that project. And it turned out, it looks really beautiful, and it turned out great. Fernando had a lot of great ideas, and it explored some of that stuff we're, we're talking about, about like, what does it mean if everyone, you know, in the in the crew is Scovish or is about freeing Scovlin from the shackles of <laughs> of Akaros and the Empire, that kind of a thing. And there's some cool inspirational material for any of you there looking to create your own settings for, you know, maybe one day we'll get a Tykerosi setting. Yeah. I don't know who would write that because I don't know if we have any real life demons to uh, provide <laughs> their own personal experiences to that setting, but uh, someone's got to do it eventually, especially after we have Dagger Alice to round everything else out. <laughs> so thank you for listening. Pam, I'm going to sneak you in. Anything else you want to say at the end here? Okay, we have a upcoming Kickstarter, which I mentioned already under the umbrella of Nevithem's End. It is called Our Shores. So you will have to literally follow me or my peers to find the page because yes. right now it is only on Notify Me on launch. Please follow us. It's very exciting. We have three projects, all from countries that do not have Kickstarter support. I have read every one of the games, so I designed one and I read the other two. It's great stuff. And we do have some very interesting plans if we overfund. So the goal here is to not just fund, it is to give us more money because we will not just be improving our games, we'll be doing a lot of other cool things. Thank you, Pam. We're drawing the veil now, and I hope you all catch us next time. And remember, when it comes to design, we all begin our journeys as hacks in the dark. (laughs) 